Mar? Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. We're just about to get set for week 11. It's Friday, August 13th. I'm Adam Ruffner, joined as always by my co-host Daniel Cohen. Daniel, how's it going? It's going good. Second to last week of the regular season. The penultimate weekend. Yeah. Should be fun. I mean, there's not a ton of great games, and I feel like the playoffs are mostly in shape as far as like which teams are, are getting in, but there's still home field advantage to be decided and a few of those like last remaining playoff spots just to lock in. So, you know, we're we're at that point in the season where postseason is really taking shape. It's a sneaky weekend. I feel like there's a couple of trap matchups that could actually play in pretty huge. Um, I, I keep looking at the DC at Tampa game and thinking like that just might get weird for the breeze. And if they <laughs> yeah. lose, then the Atlantic, you know, home field situation just gets weird. But maybe we should back up like half a step and kind of talk the broad playoff picture heading into week 11. So the West two teams are set as far as who's representing. It's going to be San Diego and Dallas. And what needs to be figured out now is who is going to be the home team. If San Diego wins one of their last two games, they will clinch a home game automatically and host the West Division championship game. Um, And then going to the Central Division, Chicago has clinched and Minnesota has all but clinched. They just need to win one of their last three games. They have two games in Week 11 at Detroit and then at Indianapolis. Um, it feels pretty much inevitable that Minnesota <laughs> will clinch that, that playoff spot in, in the Central. Yeah. But who knows, given so. how weird they've looked recently. Um, and, and also given how Detroit has looked like somewhat competent the past few games like the the i think three games ago they played indy and they lost by like i don't know six but we're kind of like hanging with them the whole game and then against madison chicago they won the first half in both those games so who knows we'll see yeah minnesota's looked weird and detroit has kind of looked like they have some fight in them I don't know. Minnesota always wins by like 20 against Detroit. I was talking to you about earlier. They should. It's like, yeah, no, but they do. It's like when it's one of those like Minnesota sports things. It's like they'll, they'll wet the bed against real competition, but then like Detroit rolls through town and that's like their get back into (laughs) rhythm game. And they're like role players look like all AUDL vets and they just score like 35 against the mechanics like that. I feel like that's a lot of wind chill mechanics matchups yeah, it's oh. it's always possible for sure i think they're two games this year they won by i want to say like 12 and 13 goals in each of yeah. the two games yeah. so it, it's yeah. usually they, they haven't had any trouble yeah okay so that's the central and then the atlantic i believe the the four seeds are clinched right i think with boston's loss to raleigh they're pretty much uh I mean, I technically, like because because Boston like, could still finish seven and five, and Raleigh has seven wins, New York has only six wins. Uh, right. I think Boston could technically get in ahead of New York if New York loses out. I want to say, uh, so you know, not very likely. I would say those four seeds are mostly set, but so it's then not, if New York, not totally the end. For if Boston. New York 
New York plays at Philly tonight, and if they win that, then I think all of the Atlantic seeds will be confirmed. Well, confirmed other than Raleigh. Raleigh needs a win too. But they play New York plays Boston twice, so right. You know, like if they both finish seven and five, it could come down to. I'm I'm gonna just stake my claim here. (laughs) It's mostly set. Four teams are going to be DC, Atlanta, New York, and Raleigh in some order in the Atlantic. Barring Boston doing something crazy in the last two weekends here, but I will just go ahead and say it's gonna be those four teams. Um, Pretty safe bet. There's a lot to be decided yet as far as what the home games will look like in the Atlantic. Um, and that's going to be huge, I think, for determining who's going to represent the two teams at championship weekend from the Atlantic. Um, so kind of getting then into the meat of week 11, I think the one true kind of standout matchup, obviously, is the game of the week matchup Saturday night, Atlanta at Raleigh. Um, both teams coming off losses last week, one goal losses, uh, Flyers obviously in the Dramatic sudden death game against New York and the hustle losing at home to Tampa uh, in the waning moments. Uh, Tampa holding on despite a couple of pretty close call passes as they were trying to bleed out the clock at the end of that game. But Atlanta loses, uh, snaps their winning streak, and now they face a fired up Flyers team and a very like pivotal rivalry, rivalry rubber match uh, and super decisive game for seeding in the Atlantic division. What do you kind of expect in this, you know, historic, like the historic, I would say rivalry in this division. So it's interesting because I feel like most of this season, we've kind of established this Atlanta narrative of really good lockdown defense, you know, switching it up between zone and person defense. And and the zone has been like really key down the stretch in a lot of these games. But the past three games, Atlanta has let up 20 plus goals, which just feels like a little uncharacteristic. And while I feel like their offense has gotten better and better as the season's gone on, I do wonder a bit about their defense. So, you know, with the way Raleigh has been playing, I don't really see them struggling too much against Atlanta's defense, but I still feel like Atlanta has the defensive playmakers. Like, you know, Kelvin's not going anywhere fairly. Jakeem Polk, Holzmeyer, like they still have all these guys that can generate turnovers. And so I feel like they they can make enough plays down the stretch, kind of like they did against New York. Um, like if their offense is, is continuing just to punch all game and it's going to be very back and forth, I still I still give a slight edge to Atlanta in this one. Although Raleigh, you know, like even though they lost to New York, they kind of should have won that game. Uh, maybe definitely should have won that game. And they still feel like a top, you know, three team in the league potentially. Uh, so it's really it's really anyone's guess of who wins this game. I feel like it's almost a guarantee to be decided by a goal. Um so I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I, I lean Atlanta very slightly, but could really see it going either way. I know you're you're kind of leaning Raleigh in this one. Yeah, I think you're onto something with 
Atlanta's streak of allowing 20 plus to opponents. I think that they're playing a little bit more up tempo. And I don't know that that suits them this season. Um, mm-hmm. I think they obviously have the personnel to do it, but you know, you see the, like you say, the blueprint, I think, for the maximum amount of success for this hustle team. And it's offensive execution coupled with clamp down lights out defense and sort of like playing a possession game i think similar to dc or even like a madison of years past where you're sort of playing both lines off of each other and i think you see a hustle team that's sort of falling in love with its playmaking and while that definitely is exciting and leads like high scoring affairs i think that they might ah this sounds so stupid they might win more successfully by just just slowing it down a little. Like I think you saw it in the first few weeks. Yeah. I think even before the New York game, obviously that's a very impressive win, but it sort of felt like towards the end of that game, New York was able to play their version of what they wanted and Atlanta was just able to outpunch them down the stretch. I don't know that that works out a second time around. I don't know that you yeah. get to out haymaker the empire as they just showed with raleigh you know as they kind of like have shown since the beginning of 2019 like it's it's really hard to outplay new york when you get down to just a possession by possession game um sure so i think what you said what you said about dc like you know taking a atlanta taking a page out of dc's book i think would be very wise because yeah it's a very it's a very fast-paced offense, and they don't really need to be when their defense is doing what they're doing. So, like, we saw in their one game, uh, or their second game against D.C., how basically Atlanta got off to a quick lead, and because D.C., like, you know, kind of takes their time on offense, like, they basically just had the Atlanta zone suffocating this team the whole time, and really it was very difficult for D.C. to come back there. But on the flip side, when D.C. is ahead... They use that possession-based offense to really just kind of drain their opponents and and hold on to the lead just from time of possession. So I feel like Atlanta could definitely benefit from that. But I hear what you're saying. Like, they are just, they're very punchy and very, uh, you know, aggressive with with hucks and playmaking. And and they have a lot of pieces to do it. But yeah, I, I I do wonder. And I also wonder if teams are maybe figuring out their defense a little more. I mean, yeah, it was New York that started the the streak of 20-plus points on Atlanta, but then Pittsburgh and Tampa, like, they, they really didn't have many issues either, and those are the, the bottom really teams. Good against the zone. <clears throat> yeah, they probably played, like, their best offensive game of the season uh, against the Atlanta defense, which, yeah, just felt a little weird and off. Um, Tampa so yeah, might have too. <laughs> <laughs> right kind right. of you so, know it's it's a weird thing to be like the hustle have the best defense in the league and it's like two straight opponents have had their best <laughs> offensive performances against it and obviously like right. the week 10 iteration of the hustle was not their full sure, strength sure, sure. but still counts they still got a loss yeah yeah i don't it like kind of getting back to the atlanta raleigh matchup in particular i just still like the direction raleigh's trending in like you say like were it not mm-hmm. for this miracle comeback, we'd be talking about the Raleigh Flyers and their eight-game winning streak and how they're sitting on top of the division. <laughs> right, yeah. 
and going into the Sidlam matchup with all the momentum in the world. And like, you know, it's it's literally a couple passes and a completely different narrative we'd be talking about right now. So I, I still think the Flyers are playing really good ultimate. And, you know, like Fisher was uh, questionable going into the Saturday night matchup. He didn't play on Friday night, right? He didn't play at mm-hmm. Boston. He's struggling yeah. a little bit with injuries. Uh, Jacob Fairfax and Connor Russell are both questionable uh this weekend which are two big time playmakers for them downfield uh Fairfax on offense and Russell on defense Russell's been one of their best playmakers on defense when he's been available this year um so those are two huge pieces but it's still just a stacked Raleigh team like you say like they still might be the third best team in the league <laughs> right they, just, they continue to play really well they they continue to have all of these just balanced pieces on both offense and defense it feels like you can take away their a game and their b game is still going to beat 95 percent of teams in this league just because of how deep and talented they are um right i don't even think i think fairfax is questionable and like if they don't have fairfax for this game i don't even think that's that big of a blow to this offense and just run with with yunks laviolette fisher and Terrence or having Eric Taylor get downfield like you know they have so many they just have such a solid core of like these hybrid cutters that can really slot in wherever it seems and like they're almost always in rhythm too obviously Fairfax is great uh, and I, I know they would like to have him but I don't see it as like a detrimental loss if he's not available which is wild considering he was first <laughs> yeah all AUDL in 2019 yeah, he was up there. I mean, he was he was an all star. He was one of their two all stars. Him and Henry Fisher. Uh, I definitely yeah. saw him this season as a potential MVP candidate coming into the year. I mean, he he has that that skill set that like you know that ideal hybrid, but also just fantastic downfield cutter. Uh, very good at at skying his opponents as well. So, yeah, I don't know they. They're definitely one of the deeper teams in the league. Uh, I I do think Atlanta is also one of the deeper teams in the league. And yeah. also Atlanta's going to have John Stubbs for the first time uh, on the road this year. It was originally talked about that he was only going to play home games. And I, I believe this is his first road appearance. So he's he's been interesting. I feel like they started him off on O-line and he was being a super efficient, you know, top 10 player in the world self and then they switched him to d-line and i don't know i feel like he's kind of had a few up and down games but still generally like you know the leader of that d-line offense i don't know what you're talking about is up and down what's it what's a down game? that that one that one game he had against the first game against dc i feel like he had two throwaways or something oh oh yeah, he okay did. he had two throwaways that's the Okay, okay, no, no, no. I've I've pulled up his stats. He had two throwaways against DC, then he also had two throwaways against New York on only eight completions. So I would count those as slightly I know, I count those as slightly down games by his standards at least. No. Boo. That's a terrible five 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 of six throwing against Pittsburgh. Yes, on D he plays D line now. That's where I understand. I understand. He's just been a little quiet. That's all. I feel like he started off so, you know, just every time he was on the field, he was throwing an assist. One of, goal, obviously, one of those, obviously, the switch to D-line 
one of those um, performances actually, that you're that you're bagging on. He has like eight completions for over two hundred yards. So I don't I don't know what you're talking about as far as him being quiet or something on defense. I feel like he's been a really key part of like swapping in on those and then just giving them again, like you're saying, like a top ten talent in the world who can suddenly just attack the end zone off of turns. I don't know. Yeah, I, I he's still I have not uh, nothing against his talent. I I agree. He's still a, a huge piece of the D line. I just mean he hasn't he hasn't looked as consistently dominant as he did in the first couple games of the season. That's get all. a layout block like the last time he played on a handler reset. That was a great play. I saw it. Yeah. Not not enough for you. That's not dominant. No, it's not. All I said, all I said is he was a little up and down. I will cite the two throwaways per game against DC and New York as why I said that. That's all. All right. I'm just going to say two is your benchmark. So I'll know to carry it across to other performances. When a player hits two turnovers, Daniel's going to say it's trash throw it out i will say just by just by comparison in his first two games of the season he completed all 44 of his throws gonna do some harrison ford no ticket to these players when they hit two turnovers (laughs) it's a magic number uh so yeah i i'm just really excited for this matchup i think that there's a ton riding into it given how the first matchup went you know atlanta held the lead for most of that game, but it really felt like Raleigh's game to lose at the end when they kind of, there was like a Terrence Mitchell block in the end zone. And despite Atlanta leading all game, the Flyers sees like a one goal lead late in the fourth. And it just sort of felt like what typically happens in the Atlanta Raleigh rivalry where Atlanta shows that they're really competitive throughout, but then Raleigh does some crazy plays at the end and just holds on for the W. Um, But obviously that's not what happened. Atlanta kind of flipped the script and Halsmeyer got that huge block out of nowhere to seal it. Um, And yeah, I just, I, I think that while that's a neat inflection point, in the longer storyline, there's still a lot to be said for how Raleigh's going to respond here in the second, second game of the series. And who knows, this might, you know, lead to a third game in the playoffs as kind of the rubber match to determine who yeah. goes championship weekend. Um, yeah. I That'd just, be cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm just, I, I'm trying to think through, who I'm expecting, like, who do you expect to kind of emerge in this series as being the central playmakers? Do you expect sort of the same thing that happened in the opening matchup where it was the Atlanta bigs coming out and getting a few blocks early and sort of shutting down Raleigh's deep game? Or do you expect sort of a response in kind from the Flyers where they say, no, we're still really good at attacking that deep space? I mean, even against New York, Raleigh, I, Raleigh, I thought, was good at, pushing the disc deep yeah uh it it feels like that is kind of the the matchup or or matchup area to watch because raleigh is obviously a team that likes to huck probably i think they huck maybe top five in the league for hucks attempted per game um and you know just with henry fisher specifically stretching the field so consistently and also guys like fairfax and LaViolette taking his fair share of shots, but also getting downfield themselves. 
um, yeah, it's uh, the stage is set for like, you know, that that high powered offense, Huck heavy looks, you know, almost on every possession against all these, you know, six, four and taller guys on Atlanta defense. So I'm pretty sure Raleigh had their lowest uh, Huck attempts of the season in that first game against Atlanta. Uh, I'm going to check that. But also just in general, I feel like these two teams are very different from that first week. You have to remember that Raleigh was held to four goals in the first half against Atlanta. So their first half of ultimate in, you know, nearly two years, they only scored four goals. Like I, that's kind of unfathomable for this Raleigh team. Like the way we've been seeing them play over the last eight weeks, you know, everything past that first game, like they've looked very, you know, they, they've had their way on offense. Like there's looked like not the been much in the standing in their way. Yeah. They look like the best offense in the league. Yeah, and okay, so they attempted four hucks in that first game, uh, which is very notable. And I don't know, you know, they've they've attempted 10-plus hucks every other game this season. uh, And I I don't think they would, like, get away from hucks as quickly and as early as they did in that first game. But we could see a lower output um, and them preferring just to work underneath with, you know, Yunks, Taylor... Solyanic, like whoever it is, just just kind of working the disc slowly up the field. But I do still think they're going to take their shots in rhythm. Uh, I'm really excited to see how Henry Fisher does against these bigs because he had like one of his worst games of the season also in that week one game. And, you know, just the, the amount of guys that Atlanta has that could match up on Henry Fisher, I just think it, it makes it that much more difficult to find space, you know, even if the defense is like switching around, it's still hard to get Henry Fisher in a mismatch. So we could see a lot of battles, you know, between him and guys like Kelvin Williams, Brett Holzmeier. It should be a lot of fun, but you know, I'd worry a little bit about Raleigh's ability to huck and, and strike deep, but not too much just because I think as a whole, they're, they're just such a more efficient dominant offense than they were in that first game. I think it might be a Terrence Mitchell game. Uh, yeah, I that I could see. He's, he's been coming on a bit of late. He's starting to get more in rhythm with the, the mids of Youngst and Laviolette kind of continuing off of their hucks. I think especially with Eric Taylor back in the lineup, him and Mitchell work really well together. Um, mm-hmm. Both Both parts, I think. I think Taylor obviously throwing to Mitchell, but I think... Taylor releasing from the backfield and finding continuation looks like off of Mitchell's cuts also works really well. So I could see that connection being a little bit more developed. That was super quiet in the first matchup. And Terrence just seems to have games against Atlanta every now and again, like his big plays seem to come against the hustle and he's been sort of quiet on that front a bit. He's still having a fairly efficient and productive year. It's just not quite, I think what we're used to from him. And so I don't know. I just, it's like one of those things where it's gut or whatever else feels like a Terrence Mitchell game tomorrow night, just a little bit, yeah. especially like if Fairfax is missing and right. you know, they, they just need like that extra pop. Like I say, like he's just looked a little bit more zippy the past couple of weeks. He seems to be finding his stride a little bit more as the season rolls. Towards he also, the 
he also played he played mostly d-line in that first game against raleigh he played 15 d points compared to three o points then the next week when they lost to dc seven d points eight o points since he's switched to you know full-time offense uh their only loss came last week against New York. So I and do feel like he he's Yeah, he did. I mean he has yeah, he had three goals in that game, six goals the week before, or the game before in Boston. Um he, he just feels like a guy that is better suited for offense. And I feel like his his, you know, experience in the system uh, you know, helps a lot. And I feel like he he's really good at timing his cuts and, and being that deep threat when he needs to be but also grinding out unders so i i agree with you i could see him kind of thriving where you know fisher draws most of the attention attention from the bigs in the deep space flip side and kind of in a similar role for atlanta is uh elijah jaime he had his best game of the season against tampa last weekend uh two assists eight goals over 300 yards receive, I think actually over 400 yards receiving. He was just a menace. And one of those guys who's, I think he's now fifth in the league in goals. Uh, he finished very 2019. quietly. He finished 2019 top six, top five with over 50 goals. Uh, he's all of a sudden become this very consistent, you know, top six ish pure receiver in the league. It's, it's not always flashy. It's a lot of fill and continuation cuts, but obviously when he needs to, Jaime makes incredibly uh, spectacular highlight plays. Um, yeah. I I think he too could have a big role in this game just with his his consistent pressuring with his cutting. You know, Raleigh has Youngst and Mitchell and LaViolette. Uh, Atlanta has Smith and Jaime of their own, you know, these kind of constant motion, super efficient can activate as like continuation thrower downfield receiver types. Um, I don't know. I just kind of wanted to give out a shout out to Jaime. I think he's playing again at an excellent level. He's, he's one of those players who it seems like you just want in your lineup. Like he's a, he's a (laughs) finisher in the end zone. He, he plays good defense. If there is a turnover, it's, it's, I, I think his consistency makes it seem as if it's casual, but I don't know. He just continually puts up numbers, you know? It's yeah. And he, and he's actually going to be operating without Matt Smith tomorrow night. Matt Smith, I believe oh, yeah, he's missing right. his first game of the season. Uh, so yeah, the stage is kind of set for Jaime to, to, assume most of the responsibility kind of in that intermediate space. And then also obviously stretching the field like he can. Don't discount the other guy who's been playing really well in that role. Tanner Robbins. Tanner. Yeah. He's been great. You know, he kind of, when they switched more in the backfield though, right? No, they've been using him in the mid role and it works out really well. He kind of, you know, again, he's, he's sort of this new style fit where you put in, really speedy almost slightly undersized guys in the mid roll but if they they mm-hmm. have like a, a a like facet to their throwing game that works in activating like your second level of downfield play it, it it like just makes your offense so efficient like i'm trying to think of various guys like obviously there's anders Jungst is kind of the the proto example of it laviolette too mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, Jaime a little bit. His, his throws aren't quite there. But yeah, like Robinson has this lefty like scoop throw that allows him to sort of like switch the field and the mark when he gets the disc. And that's just so dangerous from a downfield position. Um, so he can like find an Antoine or someone else in continuation space really easily. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, obviously they're going to miss Smith, but the prospect of Robinson and Jaime kind of taking over that role sounds like a really good, you know, thing for Atlanta. Yeah. Atlanta really, they just have these riches of offensive players, you know, like, Eckwurzel also has emerged in recent weeks. Like they, and they were already like a very loaded O line, but I feel like they just are getting more and more guys stepping up at the right time. Where you know they almost feel like Raleigh at this point. Like they just have a ton of those those mid hybrid options. Well, it's that versatility, and you know, speaking of it, like obviously John Stubbs going from O line playmaker to now D line playmaker, kind of a one on that list but same thing with robinson he was a coverage defender to start the season and now they've been slotting him in on O, and he's putting up you know 400 yard games uh Eckwurzel is ambidextrous i don't know if you've been noticing that <laughs> yep he, that's he has he he doesn't really huck it but he has very good in stride throws from both sides like 15 yards and that's just so deadly um in getting the disc in rhythm and everything and obviously Antoine uh continues to add a throwing dimension to his game and especially in this Atlanta offense just looks like the most optimized version of his playmaking self like yeah mm-hmm. just Parker Bray you know like the, the yeah well but they moved and they it. moved Bray Bray was moved to D-line in the last game too and so like again yeah, I kind of like put your shooters I kind of like it too yeah but they just yeah they have they have all these toys to play with and kind of move around and it feels like anyone can sort of slot in wherever yeah again it's just that versatility like it just makes them so potent to have to game plan for you don't know where people can slot in and that continues on defense like yeah we've talked about all season like their bigs can play almost anywhere like Fairly and Halsmeyer right. are giant dudes, but they easily guard handlers. Like the the lasting image I have of the first matchup with Raleigh was Halsmeyer guarding Eric Taylor down the stretch for considerable amounts of points. Like mm-hmm. that was that was like an eye opener to start the twenty twenty one season was seeing a six foot six dude marking up on a handler. Like and and doing <laughs> yeah, a, I mean there very good job. There are those yeah, there are those defenders out there. Like we saw Mick Walter matching up with. Mazer for a bunch of that game yeah. last week uh yeah just these super athletic bigs that yes they're they're huge but they they can also keep up with uh more more shifty guys which is impressive and yeah Holzmeier is definitely one of those athletes I feel like Jakeem Polk is another even Kelvin like just yeah dominating at the front of the zone running back and forth all game yeah they they got a lot of good pieces also, I think uh, two players to watch for the hustle, uh, Christian Olsen, as always. I just feel like he yeah. he remains one of the most underrated players in the league, if not the sport as a whole. He's just, again, a versatile piece you can put pretty much anywhere and get like a star-level performance out of. And then uh, a rookie, Kenneth Taylor, Kenny Taylor for the hustle. He's been 
he was he was a little bit more elevated in his role last week with some of the absences yeah. in the lineup. But he's a really good defender, um, and I could definitely see him coming into play, maybe guarding like a youngster, a Laviolette, or one of those midfield guys, or a handler in the backfield. Like he could come away with a couple of pretty key blocks, um, and it's just been looking really, really strong in his first year in the league. Yeah, I, I've liked what we've seen from him. Uh, definitely one of those spark plug type players. Do you feel like, as a whole, you like Atlanta's depth more than Raleigh's? If you had to pick, if you had to pick one deeper team, would you take Atlanta or Raleigh? Overall, oh. on both both sides, offense, defense, just the entire roster, who is deeper? I still think Raleigh by like a nose... Mm. looking at who they have even on their reserve list, you know, names like Justin Allen and Tristan Green and Andrew McKelvey, like those are really yeah. good D-line players. Um, yeah, I just, I, I think the Flyers by like just, just a little bit. I think the distinction is there with the reserves. Like I, I would maybe argue Atlanta has a deeper... 20-man roster like top 20 uh more just a little more star power maybe and yeah maybe i would argue some more some more shut down more shut down defenders too uh but yeah i think if you if you took their roster as a whole and like factoring in you know injuries and all that like raleigh is probably better suited uh long term to deal with that kind of stuff here's a here's a toss-up for the next three years, would you rather have John Stubbs or Eric Taylor? <laughs> oh man, I mean, can I say Taylor because I I'm not sold on Stubbs staying in the AUDL that long. I mean, you're is that, allowed. Is to that a say, fair response? You're allowed to, you're allowed to take whatever. Okay, I just you know with any offer like <laughs> this is not a fair question. I'm not trying to put you in an easy spot. Any, uh, you know, any any AUDL rookie, like I'm gonna just instinctively, you know, not not buy that they're gonna stick around for the long haul. I think there are a lot of guys that'll play a year in the AUDL and then leave. Uh, but Eric Taylor kind of feels like, at least, you know, he's in his second year now. Uh, feels like he's very bought into the Rally Flyers franchise and and is kind of like becoming the face if he's not already. Uh, and really feels like a franchise player. Obviously, there's no denying Stubbs' talent. And, like, would I rather have Stubbs on the field, like, on any given Saturday? Probably. But I would say long-term. I, I also like, I really like the prospects of, like, just Taylor continuing to develop into the all-around player that he kind of already is. Um, but, you know, just just more securely being in the MVP conversation for years to come. I feel like that's, that's kind of the next logical progression I see for him. I think so, Taylor would I'm leaning Taylor. I think Taylor would absolutely be in the MVP conversation this year. Had he not missed a month with injury. Yeah, you're probably I mean, right. In yeah. the games he's played, he's looked like Raleigh's best player most of the time. Yeah. He was absolutely instrumental for them in that New York game. I mean, obviously the the hammer throws at the end, not excluding like the those were a little, I think, uh, erroneous data points. But like he had the 
the game tying no look assist at the end of the third to Jacob Fairfax. He had that incredible half field hammer to Terrence Mitchell that like needed to be put within a one square foot box <laughs> for it to be yeah. completed and not deed up by Ben Yacht and Oh, Taylor that was so there. nice. It kind of like it kind of double helix at the end too. Like it sort oh, of drifted like into the perfect spot. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah, it was just it so sat well down. It like stopped driving and just sat where it needed to, right on the uh, end zone line. Like, yeah, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question either. I think I would go with <laughs> what you're saying. Like in a single game setting, I might take stubs, but I think over a three year developmental curve. And just yeah. like what you can do around them as far as build a team, I, I would take Taylor. Just by right, like, I'm I'm a little more excited to see what Taylor does margins. in the future. <laughs> yeah, the slightest of margins. Yeah, it is close. I did kind of want to diverge from this and go into a slight, just kind of um, applause topic of congratulating Kevin Quinlan who played last night in his 100th AUDL game he's the 13th player I believe to reach the 100 goal mark or at 100 goal 100 game mark in the AUDL yeah um, it's, a, it's an exclusive club and it's a lot of it's a lot of like alley cats and probably a good amount of radicals too yeah, you know, a lot of central okay. division because that has been around the longest. Well, so, yeah, I wanted to bring up the point that he's still one of the only, I believe, four players now who's played in every season of the AUDL since 2012. And like you're mm-hmm. saying, most of those other players played for one franchise over the course of their career. KQ has played now for three, I believe. He was with the Buffalo Hunters, the Rochester Dragons, and then he's been with montreal since the beginning of 2016 um that's super impressive that he's he's relocated to a different country to keep the dream alive and to keep kind of pursuing this and he's playing his best ultimate now in montreal these past couple years like his 2019 season if we had yardage in that year added with his like assist numbers (laughs) with like his completion percent like he he had 50 plus assists on what, like 240 completions, like not many. And he was completing yeah, like 95% of his throws. He, I mean, he, was, he was just bombing was hammers bombing repeatedly. It was, <laughs> I, I, if we had yardage, it would stand out as one of those individual seasons where like, yes, they didn't make the playoffs, but we would have to just go back and talk about from a pure throwing standpoint, like, that's probably one of the top 15, if not top 10 in AUDL history. Like just, yeah, I think his, his highlights are are some of the more fun throwing highlights to watch. And also not even just as a thrower, like he, he's played this sort of hybrid role where he, he does shoot a lot, almost to the point where you, you kind of assume that he's a handler, but no, he like, he's still getting downfield a ton. He's just like always taking full advantage when the disc is in his hands, it seems. I mean, you want to know why he was a gymnast growing up. Was he? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. That was like his first athletic slash sport pursuit was gymnast. Okay. And wait, what, how does that correlate to his ultimate success? He's just a uh, very able-bodied gang downfield. I think a lot of people underestimate oh, him. Oh, sure, sure. Just looking at him, like how athletic he is and how good he is, especially in the air. Like if you watch him over the course of his year, 
his career, he's very good at in air adjustments and going up early. Um, you know, yeah. he stands at about five foot eight, but he he will routinely win one on one downfield battles because he just has a, a presence of being in the air. Like there is sort of like a balletic coordination involved in doing that. You can see that in like yeah. different different ways that ju- dudes jump, right? Like there's mm-hmm. sort of the just like raw athlete who just kind of like goes up very like aggressively. And then there's sort of these other types who are maybe a little bit more lith framed who need to like twirl or kind of adjust as they go up because they, <laughs> you know, like they can't do the yeah, yeah. thing. Um, it's just really interesting. And KQ has obviously always been one of the the latter ones. Um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to give a, a shout out. You know, 100 games is not something to sniff at. Um should probably do this sort of thing more often on here. I think Pat Shrywise just reached 100 games a couple ago as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty cool club. Like 100 games of professional ultimate is so much to think about. Like I think the least amount of years you would have to play to even get to that is six so far. Six yeah. or seven. Yeah, so it's seven. a lot of commitment. Uh, I'm also looking at the the all-time games leaders and Isaiah Master Kelly is at 99 games. I believe he no. is expected to play tomorrow night. So is he? That would be fantastic. I would love I think to see. So. I am. So I think he'll. That. Yeah, he'll get to 100. Also, Kevin Quinlan, happy birthday! His birthday is tomorrow. He's only turning 28. Like he's he's been in the league for the. You know, he's kind of like the Travis Carpenter type. Uh, just started playing when he was super young. So he's this like super experienced vet, but still not even 30. Uh, still probably has his best years ahead of him, as scary as that sounds for, you know, East Division opponents. I don't like hearing it. I don't like it. <laughs> Creeps me out when you say stuff like that. Like, like Terrence Mitchell's only like 26 or something. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. Like they've been in the well, league like you know. seven years or something and they're, just hitting their mid to late twenties. I know, but we could, you know, we could also talk about like the eighteen and nineteen year olds that have, you know, just come on firing this year and in twenty nineteen too. I know age is just a number, Adam. Don't worry. 